The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron Joel. G'day, welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. Today's episode features a dear friend of mine and mentor of mine, Australian regenerative agricultural designer, Darren Doherty. Darren, with his wife Lisa and eldest daughter Isabella, run Regrarians. I've been following the work of Darren and Regrarians for a number of years now, and in my opinion, Darren is the world's best broad-scale regenerative agricultural designer. Uh, He's taught me a great deal, and the work he does with Regrarians is amazing. He's got such a keen mind and I feel a really refreshing balance between progressive and more traditional ways of thinking and doing things. As recognised as Darren is the world over by those in the circles of permaculture, holistic management, regenerative agriculture in general, I still think he's vastly underappreciated. He's something of a national treasure. I do urge anyone listening to this to head to the website regrarians.org. Check out their stuff, the Regrarians Handbook, uh, well worth a look for the practitioners in particular of regenerative agriculture. It's the place to go. It's the one main, if you had to buy one publication on regenerative agriculture, particularly from a kind of applied angle, then that would be the place to go. Uh, In this chat, we talk about all sorts of different things. Homemade mustard, (laughs) Darren's Irish heritage, the early years of permaculture in Australia, of which Darren had something of a front row seat, uh, almost being the protege in many ways of Bill Mollison and and working with David Holmgren, Uh, the pedagogy of regenerative agriculture, contemporary Australian folk culture and lack thereof, and many other things. My insomnia cycles kicked in apparently, so I had bugger all sleep last night, and I think you can tell in this recording I'm pretty flat, to be honest. Um, Despite my keen interest in the subject matters, my tone's pretty flat, but other than that, it went really well. So without further ado, my friend and mentor, Darren Doherty. Darren Doherty of Regrarian's fame and fortune. Darren Doherty is known to the world as or Darren O'Docrity to the insiders or does O'Docrity O'Docrity pardon me does to your friends and um Darren Donut Doherty to my children mm-hmm. they still refer to you as that how are you welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast well thank you so much Byron and yes um you can you can tell your children that the donut is going really well uh, I'm glad the don't the donut uh, lives in a cafe now so um because that's where Regrarians finds itself headquartered here in beautiful Castlemaine at the Creamtown Complex. That's going all right, given the current context and circumstances of like kind of reduced, limited patroni- patronism, patronising, patronage. Patronage, yes. It's, it's patronising of you to say yeah. that about our patronage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, no, it's going quite well. Um, we opened, in fact, there's even an article on it, uh, how, do you, uh, how do you start a cafe or something in the middle of a pandemic? Um, so 
this this initiative was born out of COVID and uh, our kids lost their jobs. Uh, two of them lost their jobs while working here, one of them full-time, and uh, so it became an opportunity to take up and uh, it's sort of taken on a life of its own and it's become a, a hub mm. of all sorts. Yeah, well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you with your background in hospitality and your interest and background in agriculture, which we'll get into, you guys, Regrarians itself is something of a hub, if an intellectual one, of so many different things. Would you give us, for those who aren't familiar with you, for the minimum of people out there in internet land who haven't heard of Darren Doherty and Regrarians, would you give us the elevator pitch? Oh, well... I'm, I'm, just, I'm distinctly unhospitable when it comes to elevator pitches. I usually ignore people. But, um, no, I um, – well, Regrarians is a non-profit that was founded in 2013 and we've been working in the sort of farm planning space since March the 6th, 1993. So we're coming up 28 years in a couple of weeks, or a few weeks. Um, we we uh, these days uh, – um, seek to work with people who are um, looking to plan their farms and we've developed participatory and very DIY uh, methods of doing so through the agency of a digital space called the Regrarians Workplace um, and that allows us to well as I put it um, have a whole community of practice support you to um, develop your farm plans, um, whereas for a long time I developed a lot of farm plans for a lot of people um, and sort of took that role away from them and now we've sort of gone back to how farm planning started and that's where people had people like me and others around them facilitate that process. So that's, that's what we're doing these days as well as, as you mentioned, we've We've branched it back into hospitality and uh, with the Creamtown Initiative, which is an arts hub and, a, well, it's really become a creatives hub. Um, so we have quite a few people who come here every day and use this as their workplace, uh, their physical workplace. Right. And meet, great. And a lot of Castlemaine is a very uh, creative place, Um so it's well well situated for that, and we only serve organic, biodynamic, biologically progressive, or food from organic BD, biological progressive um, producers in this region. And actual food, actual food, yeah. And we pretty well make everything here. I mean, I make the mustard. There's no. I mean, really? I, you, you look at oh, you look at it and you go, I bought a jar of mustard one day, and you look at it and go, how hard can this be? So you go to YouTube, you just go on the phone and you go, oh, it's actually that easy. And when you make it, it takes, it literally takes me a minute and a half to make, you know, a, a lot of mustard. Do you use the leaf or the seed? No, the seed, the seed, yeah. The seed, I make, I make Dijon mustard. Officiado is far too strong a term, but me and mustard get along real well. I, I buy the seed. I buy organic um, yellow and brown mustards right. and I combine them together 50-50. Mm -hmm. And if you come in a little closer, I'll just give you the recipe. It's, um, right. it's a very simple one, yeah. It's um, yeah. six tablespoons of mustard seed, 
Yeah. One third of a cup of organic uh, Chardonnay I've found is the best. A bit really? of Chardy. Yeah. Um, I've tried Sav Blanc and a few others. Uh, I, I, the first one I used, Lisa, got my wife um, got very upset with me because she said that was 30 bucks um, <laughs> and I was using it to make the mustard. Um, so anyway, I resolved to getting um, some lower cost Australian, local Australian uh, Chardonnay. There's nothing wrong with Chardonnay. There's nothing wrong nothing with Nothing wrong with it. Not lovely grape. Um, and a third of a cup of, um, um, oh, we get the fruit fetish apple cider vinegar uh-huh. and then a bit of salt and a bit of, um, what do you call it, a bit of pepper and a spoon of caramelised onions. Oh, yeah. Which, I, which I've developed a very fine method for making and um, put that together. You put it into a little plastic container or jar overnight mm-hmm. and then bar, uh, bar mix it or blend it or whatever the next day to the consistency that you would like to have. Mm-hmm. You yeah. can make the, the seeds disappear into a aqueous blend or you can have the sort of seeded mustard look. Um, I don't mind either, I personally. I, I, like, a, I like a seedy mustard. But be aware the first aroma makes you makes uh, you realise that mustard is a very potent oh my word um, material, and um, yeah, well we know that uh, a lot of people suffered from its mm. ill use in the first war, World War. My great grandfather died from mustard gas in a yeah, yeah yeah. Well, I was just reading about that. I was I'm reading the nearly finished the biography of JBS. Haldane, um, who was one of the great scientists of the of Britain, and um, and his father um, um, worked a lot on gas masks in World War One, when his son, the great JBS, was in the trenches, enjoying himself, evidently. But that's a whole other story, Byron. And there are so many. Well, mustard. Well, now we've covered the important <laughs> stuff. Thank you, Darren Doherty of Agrarians. It's been a pleasure having you. No worries, mate. You've got the recipe. Yeah. Just between us. Yes. (laughs) So, Castle, Maine, you're you're a central Victorian kind of guy, aren't you? Born and raised and bred. But as the the bumper sticker here says, there's no R in Castle. So... um, uh, Yeah, it's a lovely place. And um, Lisa and I were looking to move down here at the, uh, when we first got together in 91 and uh, when, when we got pregnant with Isabella, uh, Lisa's mum pleaded with us not to leave Bendigo, which is half an hour up the road. And gets 30, uh, Bendigo gets about 20 frosts a year and Castlemaine gets 60. Really? So there's, yeah. So oh. the best citrus you can do here is a, is a, um, is a Mayer lemon in a movable pot. Um, so we, yeah, so I have to go to my mum's to get lemons. It's, um, terrible. So really? yeah. I didn't realize it was that pronounced a difference. Just down yeah. The well, it's like this, um, it's a little topographically it's, um, it's, it's, it's the convergence of, um, two pretty big creeks, which come together, mm. uh, Barker Creek and Forest Creek. And Castlemaine was originally known as Forest Creek and it was the richest alluvial gold field in the world and, and ever. Um, so it's a classic gold rush town and then became an industrial town um, 
and the railway line between Bendigo and, um, and um, Melbourne goes through here. And so right. it's become, it's grown into this gentrified um, outlet of Melbourne. It's called North Northcote because I think there's more cafes here than people. Um, and uh, Sounds like Fremantle. Yeah, yeah, but it's about an hour and ten on the so, but um, on the train. But a lot of people commute from here, and so it's got quite expensive real estate. Mm. Um, but it's um, yeah, it's a vibrant population, and it's a good mix of of people. It's got you know a lot of a lot of people who are tradespeople here, and um, and then it's got the self funded retiree crowd and um, the young professionals who commute and so on. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a good place. I. I I like it because it reminds me of Bendigo was when I was a kid. It's not right. as busy as Bendigo's got too busy for me yeah. now. Well, I bet my first time in Castlemaine was at the uh, during the Rex, which was the oh, rad yeah. at that point. Yeah. And we went mm. to Dan Palmer's place. That big oak tree in the back here. His big oak tree. Yeah, there's a photo of us all under that oak tree. But mm. the mm. piece de la resistance was the uh, Quercus macrocarpa, the burr oak. Mm. Yes, on Barker Street. Well, I can see that through my window. Really? Well, I remember just about fainting because it was the perfect time of year, late summer, uh, early autumn. I forget the actual month, but it was in fruit. I think it was in May. Yeah, it was in May. Yeah. At any rate, I accidentally went home with some uh, acorns. That's amazing how they fall into your pocket if you stand under the tree for long yeah, enough. Yeah, it actually fell. They fell into my boots and I didn't realise what was going on and I got <laughs> home. And, anyway. Did they survive? Did they Did they grow into uh, something magnificent? Yeah. They, yeah, they did. They're a magnificent tree. The fruit on them is, yeah, is considerable. So you are from a serious pedigree of Irish heritage. Mm. Can you explain mm. the, your use of the name Odocrity? Did I get it right? I always muck that up. Uh, oh, oh Docrity, it's it's no point you trying, but that's okay. <laughs> All right, sorry. <laughs> you know, it's my Slavic blood. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, it's whatever blood you choose on the day, but uh, no, I, I'm I'm um, about fifty percent Irish uh, from what uh, the DNA says on today. Anyway, um, a little bit of Cornish and. Uh, Tiniest bit of pom, but uh, I think that's transient pom. Um, and, um, you know, like a lot of people who go through that place. And um, the rest is uh, from Schleswig Holstein, um, which has been Denmark, been, been uh, German. I think it's German at the moment. Um, and uh, anyway, um, oh, Docherty, it's, it's been a bit controversial. It does mean destructive which for someone who um, is in the regeneration business is, you know, perhaps a bit of a misnomer, but, you know, I shouldn't carry that burden. But it also, there was a rumour that it meant, uh, which is still pops around, that it's men of oak houses. Oh, I'd run with that one. No. Ah, so. Are we talking, uh, is this Irish Gaelic? Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So the Aldocrates um, still um, own uh, the the northernmost tip of Ireland, which is a peninsula called Inishon. Um, and um, it's all old Doherty there. You know, Donegal is the, is, is, is the old Doherty. Um, Daru or Daro and Daru is the mm-hmm. Indo-European root word for oak. Mm. That could be how and where it slides in. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, 
anyway, I love it. I love I love I love a good oak tree as as you do, Mister Oak Tree. Yeah, I, I got a thing for him. It's actually verging on obsessive. Your story in terms of the development of your interest and practice in all things agricultural. You went to Bendigo High. <laughs> I that- attended Bendigo High. Yeah, thirty eight percent of the time, according to the uh, to the year level coordinator. <laughs> right. Okay. Just enough to sneak. Well, Bendigo it. High is right next to Roslyn Park, which is a beautiful park filled with um, that was planted. Uh, I'm going to say in, in the 1880s or so, um, influenced heavily as many were by um, Baron Ferdinand von Mueller, you'd be aware of, of course. Great name. Um, the the, the, um, the government botanist um, of, back in the gold gold mining period in the colony of Victoria, and uh, it's a magnificent park. And so Bendigo High is a senior high, and so all of us. It was like a convergence of all the kids who went to the different high schools mm-hmm. years 7 to 10 would then either go to tech school or you would go to Bendigo High. So it was like this convergence of all of the, all of the kids of Bendigo, including refugees from the Catholic and, um, and grammar school um, who decided that, you know, not, not wearing a uniform and having, being in a school in town um, and being pretty, in a pretty senior novel. Pretty novel. It was sort of almost, I suppose, like a pre-university um, uh, atmosphere. Was it agriculturally themed? No, none, none, none whatsoever. None. Okay. It, no, it was a completely concrete school. There's no oval or anything there. You know, okay. there was a tennis court. That I think that was about the broadest expanse that was there. Did you have any inclination at that stage that you would head down the path that you're in? No, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. When do you recall a penny dropping or in retrospect, was there a moment that's defining or? I think, well, when I was, this is, it was incremental because, um, you know, I was awfully itinerant, you know, I, like a lot of kids my age, I mean, I was just interested in smoking pot, drinking beer, partying, being with my mates, playing footy, um, and going to nightclubs and all that sort of stuff in that period. And then when I was terrible at school and didn't turn up because um, I was at the pub or in the park just hanging out. Um, and so that when I finished year 12, which meant I just went through to the end of that year and failed miserably, then the next year I went up, up to Queens, went Queensland with a bunch of mates and just hung out for a year. And then the next year I got a job at the uh, Eagle Hawk restaurant, um, which was a hatted, it had a good food guide hat, which is, uh, yeah, at that time, I think it was the only country Victorian restaurant that had a hat. And I was working with a fantastic couple, Gordon um, Richards and his wife, uh, Janine Canolan. And they were a great, he was a chef. Um, she was a great front of house person. And they were very, one of those great dynamic duos. And that was the first time, I suppose, that I made the food um, farm connection because we were getting a lot of product from a lot of really great farmers in central Victoria. And then I stayed in hospitality for quite a few years. Um, And it was when I was in Tasmania working at the International Hotel in Launceston, which we opened, and I was a chef de rang there cooking at tables, very young, um, 
executive chef, a guy uh, who's still a, a quite a well-known chef now, uh, Brett Hansen, and he he um, had a real local organic theme, and that was in Launceston. So this is in about 1988 or so, um, and yeah, we were buying a lot of stuff from from the farmers, and they were coming in and dropping their stuff off and so on. And then um, I left hospitality and got a job um, at the organic greengrocer in Bendigo. So I moved home, uh, got a job there. Actually, no, I moved out to my nana and granddad's farm outside of Bendigo, and I was working there at the farm looking after them and their, all, all that they had going on as they got older at the same time as running this shop. And that gave me a – that was the sort of – the final segue into the career that I had because that's when I started to provide advice. Well, I'd get the IP of one farmer because I was actually going on, I was I was a buyer. So I'd go on to their farms and we'd talk about their production systems and blah, 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 and then I'd pass it the, and then they'd say, oh, what's, what's so-and-so doing about growing his carrots or growing his beeves or growing his pigs or whatever? And I'd say, oh, look, I can't really tell you, however. <laughs> rumour has it. <laughs> rumour has it. And then also um, customers at the shop, you know, some of them would have a little acreage or something like that and they'd say, oh, and we'd start talking about their acreage over time, where you get you build relationships with people at the counter. Yeah, you and, do indeed. Um, and you know, the 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 conversations get beyond how much of the lettuce is today, or this is forty nine thank forty nine ninety five today. You know, that's thank you very much. It gets to what's your life, and what are you growing, and da 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 da. So it's all sort of this incremental path, and that was so I started getting invited out to people's properties um, um, to go and have a cup of tea or a glass of wine and walk around and scratch the soil and what should and then it became a sort of what goes what should go here and what should go there sort of program and um, off we went from there and that's that's what I've continued to do to this day okay and uh, when when do you recall the first time that you discovered the likes of permaculture in particular and or the first time that you met old Bill Mollison? <laughs> well, they're two separate times. Yeah. Um, the first time I had read um, read about permaculture, I'm going to say, was in about probably in about 1980. Yeah, it was probably in Tassie, probably 87, 88. Um, I was, um, I've always been a magazine, or back then at least, you know, before the internet, people, well, people of my age and I suppose yours, um, we used to buy magazines because that was the internet. Yeah. Then. And um, so I was buying the organic grower magazine and this, that and the other and this permaculture stuff and Acres Australia and a few other things, you know, I can't remember exactly, mm-hmm. but there was a few bits like that. And one of my mates um, who's since passed, old Crutchy Peter Crutchfield. He was a, well, we called him a hippie. Um, but anyway, Crutchy, um, Crutchy, um, he uh, he had a copy of One Straw Revolution, right? And and I've still and I've still got his copy because uh, he's dead and I can't give it back to him. But um, he uh, 
But I offered it to his son. Yeah, all right, all <laughs> He's right. <a> mate. <laughs> so I'm off the hook. Okay. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Kutchi gave me this, and I went, oh, and I, I know I, I was out at my grandparents, and I was reading through, and blah blah blah. And I, the whole one straw revolution thing was pretty. That was a key piece in my journey because. Um, and it's one of those texts. Nowadays, there are permaculture books and there are regen ag books. And once upon a time, like those first generation regen ag permaculture thinkers, if you will, there's this whole suite of publications that you can almost pick who studied under who and what generation of thinking they're in by the texts that they read, because that one straw revolution is one of them. The other ones was a farmer for 40 centuries. The green history of the world, I think, is another one. Popinow's subtropical fruit books there's this there's this suite of them farmers factories of the future by Kropotkin so on yeah um yeah I, I know I don't know exactly what you're saying it's interesting me to me the whole lineage thing um you've had like a front row seat yeah, yeah I have I have to an extent being someone who started pretty early but um yeah look look the when I read that then immediately I I looked oh shit this bloke's got some other books and I can't remember. He wrote two other books, and there was one of them where he had a photo of himself. Of Fu, Fu, there was a photo of Fukuoka, Wes Jackson of the Land Institute, and this bloke Bill Mollison, and that said Bill Mollison from Australia. I went, oh. um, and I think it might have mentioned permaculture or whatever. And permaculture is sort of like this background world, word in stuff that I was reading, and the organic because I was reading more about the organic farming and organic gardening and that right. sort of side of things, and. I don't know, it just seemed to be this thing in the background. And um, anyway, I think it wasn't until 1993 uh, that uh, when I started doing the farm planning thing, um, I was thinking, oh, all this, what do you do? And I was looking around doing farm planning courses and this, that and the other. And this course with um, Andrew Sheridan and and, uh, Hugh Graverstein came up in southern New South Wales. So... Um, went up there and did that two-week course, which was great, um, and then followed that with uh, with the course on farm planning at the University of Melbourne, which that was a sort of a an, and a Keatline course with um, Vries Graverstein and um, and Alan Lehman. So I had these three quite different courses from, and when you talk about lineages, um, quite different lineages. Obviously, Keyline and permaculture are linked together through the agency of Yeomans and and uh, Mollison and Holmgren, both sort of being standing on the shoulders in large part on Yeomans. But then the whole farm planning thing, that all came from soil conservation, which in its, well, Yeomans was a bit influenced from in the start, but, uh, you know, separated from quite strongly. Um, and then I met Bill Mollison in 95. I went up and did, um, I, you know, I got into the permie sort of thing for a while there and um, I saw that he was running one of his last courses. <laughs> Bill Mollison's last ever course in 1995. Sail, sail, sail. Yeah, I, I did two. I did. I talked with Bill on two of his last courses um, in 2001. Um, anyway, be that as it may, and... Um, and I'd applied to do my diploma because I found out that you could do a diploma of permaculture design. And um, so I um, went up there with my X number of designs and blah, blah. And I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to get him to uh, sign my, uh, 
my diploma right there and then I wanted to get this thing physically in my hand. So I went up and did a, another PDC with him with about 80 people sleeping on floors and having a great time, yeah, smoking a lot of, smoking a lot of dope. And was that in a uh, – oh, fuck. What's – where's that? Ty Elgin. Tagari Farm. Tagari. Yeah. 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 Then the next year I went up there and did an earthworks course with him and there was only about – five people, five or six people, and we just smoked cigarettes and drank cups of tea from like six in the morning till five five the next morning, um, just basically listening to Bill <laughs> for about a week, and that was bloody awesome. It was, And he was between wives, so he was free. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. I never, I never had the pleasure of meeting Bill in person. but um... Well, my good friend. And Speedy Water, who lives here now, he was he was Bill's sort of personal nurseryman, and they lived together on their farm. And so Speedy was there as well. So Bill was batch was a bachelor at that point. So it was Speedy, and um, yeah, it was, and we went we go out and we do a bit of surveying. We build a couple of swales, and we sort of pushed. You know, old Doug Durrow was there, and we we're you know using the dozer and doing this that and the other we didn't actually do that much earthworks we talked about it but the rest of the time we just hung out with bill and just right have you been back there in recent years and had a look around at how it's succeeded i think i'm going to say the last time i went to tagari was i think in 2002 lisa mollison bill's last wife um uh, she asked me and bill asked me i was up working up there and they asked me to go and have a look at it because this bloke, this English bloke, um, um, took it over, um, and um, and uh, he's gone on to uh, other things. Anyway, this English bloke sort of left it alone, um, or he might have been shifted on. I don't know the entire story, Byron, but uh, something happened. Something happened. Look, for those for those that don't know, this is a farm that Bill Mollison set up in northern New South Wales at a, a town called Tyalgum. That's in the caldera of Mount Warning, the volcano up there. And it was a playground for Mollison and friends for some years. And I had the pleasure of, I went there last, I've been there a couple of times, last in around 2012. Yeah, right. And it's just, it's fascinating to just see how the, I mean, you know, there's been people squatting in it and da-da-da-da, but, I mean, talk about biomass. Yeah, it was... Well, I went there in 2002 after it had been abandoned uh, by this English bloke for about six months after I think he was shifted on, moved on. Oh, the pennies only just (laughs) dropped us. Okay, yeah, go on. So is this where I put my pleading falsetto on? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Anyway, they said, go and have a look at it and... um, and you know, it's like you say. I mean, it's I, I find abandonment, and I've all you know, having grown up on the gold fields, you sort of see, um, you know, as you go. I used to ride around with my push bike with my brother, and we'd go to abandoned places, and there'd be abandoned trees, and da da da. So I've, I've found, but you know, when you think about it, and as I was coming into that period of my life, um, actually looking at the ecological outcomes of a of the abandonment of cultivated ecosystems. Uh, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. So it would have been, yeah, amazing to have seen it another, yet another 10 years later because, you know, the Bill's built, there was sort of like two parts to that property. There was the original five acres I think he had and then there was the rest of it, which was about another 150 or 200 acres or something. And Bill used to come up with 
crazy plans. Like he had this really bizarre sort of business uh, idea that, you know, he'd say, all right, well, if I, if I plant 100 mangoes, then he'd count how many mangoes they'd each produce and then those mangoes would equal living, you know, go and, and you can go and make your living on that. And I planted them and da 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 And it just didn't quite pencil out because, well, for a start, the mangoes were never taken care yeah, of. The food forest technique. Um, you know, so the whole, the whole cultivation part of this um, wasn't actually taken care of. And, you know, they'd be smothered by blady grass. And- Which is indicative of the kind of permaculture. There's a part of permaculture that... Permaculture gets critiqued a sure. lot. I'll defend its core principles. Sure. Same, same. It's great. Yeah. When you reduce it down to what I call permaculture with a capital P versus all of these kind of add-ons and plugins and whatnot, I'll defend it. But it does have, it is accused fairly often of a kind of head in the clouds, hippy-dippy idealism. Well, it often attracts people like that, which is interesting because when you go back like the early adopters of permaculture often were pretty, I would say, a lot. There were quite a few people who were early adopters of, of permaculture who I um, saw were, let's just say, a lot more serious about it. Um, it wasn't just a, some, I mean, I'm simplifying and people say different things, but uh, it wasn't a gardening concept. It wasn't just a sustainability thing that, you know, they were, they seem to understand it better from the perspective of of the um, of the zones, you know. And and Mollison's Tagari property was a classic case of what I call Zone Two Point Five, except Zone Two Point Five went over a broad acreage, and so there wasn't the human capacity to manage something of that zone intensity over that much area, right? So. It's meant, it should have been a zone three or four landscape, um, but it was actually managed. Well, the the systems that were installed really should have been in zone two. So they didn't. So as a result, um, the human resources and the human effort was spread really thinly. Part, part, uh, put to that, you know, Bill had this great dream of the, like he really loved the Basque Mondragon model. He used to talk about it all the time. Or it was his... It was like he's um, this whole thing, which, you know, and the, the Mondragon model, as I discovered uh, afterwards, is, uh, and people will correct me here, but um, was a family, was a, was a Catholic family system of governance and, and shared enterprise and very collaborative enterprises. And it worked really well because they were, you know, they had the glue of family. Whereas when you tried to apply that using, for want of a better term, disparate hippies who have converged on, on a place, um, then um, without any skin in the game, um, then, uh, well, it, it met a natural idea. It met the end that most idealist, idealistic um, uh, projects do. I was a woofer coordinator and it was funny because on, on the one hand I felt like I was living my dream like a 20 something, whatever I was at the time, you know, botanophile mm. and all these are my students coming from overseas mm. and just, you know, cult, you know, it was just so invigorating mm. and stimulating. And on the other hand, it was sending me goddamn insane, mm. like just hurting cats. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I think it's a it's a great movement and a great stepping stone in a lot of ways. But uh, it's a uh, well for me it was um, it it was something that had its moment in my time and uh, and it's way be behind me now. So, uh, but but I like, I like you. Um, I look at permaculture now uh, more so for the principles than the ethics. Uh, I don't. You know, one of the people often say to us with our agrarians uh, project, uh, you know, why don't you have a core of ethics? And I say, well, when you start to go down the ethic thing, uh, when you start to put that in, well, then people start to get a bit weird. They start to get a bit, you know, it starts to be a proxy for religion. And I don't want to go there, so uh, we we just we just stick to layers. <laughs> it seems to work, yeah. People can believe whatever they want to believe. I don't really give a shit, really. You're a, a big fan of uh, Mr. P.A. Yeomans. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know him. I never met him. So I don't know about him personally, but definitely of of the key line plan. Yeah, definitely. And, and you, you grew up on a farm in Bendigo. Mm-hmm. That was it. He had visited and planned, or he no, had... no, not not none at all, not at all. No, the uh, it was interesting because I brought this up with my grandfather when I, you know, I got into yeomans pretty early in my farm planning career, and um, I brought the stuff home, and Granddad and I were talking, and the way it, like Granddad who did most of this development, he wasn't directly, um, like he hadn't read anything by Yeomans or whatever. Um, But what was clear to us in our conversations about it was that like so many people, um, this is, this is, I suppose, the greatest influence of Yeomans is that, you know, when you, when you develop a concept and then um, it gets spread and it gets spread without that we're to the point where the people who are using some of those methods don't even know what it's called. I think that's, 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 that's true success. And, um, and I, I, I put this in our original business plan in 1993 um, that I, at that stage I said um, I wanted to make, uh, perma- I want to move permaculture from being a marginal methodology to an unconscious practice. And, to a degree, or at least in the in the case of our farm, um, Keyline had become that, because the pervasiveness of Yeomans, um, a lot of people wouldn't appreciate this, but the per- pervasiveness of Yeomans, even in just dam designs. I mean, the kind of dam designs that Yeomans came up with didn't exist before him. You know, the contour dam, the hillside dam, um, all of those things didn't didn't exist before in the general. Uh, Australian landscape and you see this when you go to the United States people build ponds and stuff there but they don't build them where Australians do because they didn't have yeomans and so and they didn't uh, and the people in the US don't connect their dams like they do in Australia they don't have water conservation channel you know there's a lot of these different aspects so we had all of that and we had lock pipes and stuff no one had lock pipes before yeomans so so I say that our farm was designed and laid out according to some keyline principles, but those principles were not known to my grandfather as keyline principles. Yeah, they were just things that were were practices that um, 
had uh, had sort of gone how could you say without 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 a name without a label as being what you did so and so when when you began to consume uh yeoman's mm-hmm. work and having had the background of growing up on a on a farm with those principles or similar with this silent influence yeah right. and you you recognize that as you were reading yeoman's work do you remember oh absolutely yeah and that's why i brought it back to granddad i said did you read this bloke you know and he goes no i mean i knew granddad's library i've always been a big reader and i, I know everyone's library um i guess the first place i go into into someone's house so <laughs> go straight to their bookshelf <laughs> so <laughs> i've always done that so um yeah no he didn't have any books on that yeah he didn't have any books on farm planning. I've heard you say it before in Australia. Uh, I don't know if it's surprising, something of a shame that the likes of Yeomans isn't recognised more for what he's what he's done and what he's contributed. And uh, there's still not a unit in tertiary education that ever speaks to Keyline no. Design. And I mean, Keyline is arguably the foundation. If you're going to pick something, it's the foundation of the greater regenerative agriculture movement you know it'll be close to it yeah that and holistic management i think but um yeah i suppose when you talk foundations like there's so many different things like there's organics and but organics doesn't like there's no frameworks you know um Mm, yeah right yeah yeah love a good framework yeah so that said yeoman's never developed a pedagogy so which i think was probably or part of how um, he didn't get as embedded as he might otherwise. Um, like a permaculture developed a pedagogy, so um, right, yep, and so on. Uh, holistic management's got a pedagogy, and so when you have, I know we've talked about this before, but uh, when you have that pedagogy, well, then it creates a lineage, which obviously um, makes the uh, originators of that better known. Um, you'll always associate permaculture for, you know, in 200 years, we'll always know permaculture is Bill Mollis and David Holmgren's thing, right? Or that holistic management is is, is uh, Alan Savory's thing. But if we're talking in 200 years and Keyline's sort of forgotten about, which it well could be, um, then it'll just be something obscure uh, by but people may well be using its its practices still. Yeah, well, I see the same here in southwestern Australia. There are people who use it and apply those principles who they don't no. know that, where it's come from. But how do you see um, the current, in search of a better term, folk relationship, folk culture in Australia, on ground, human hands in the dirt relationship between the Australian people, contemporary Australian peoples, and country, the national the national discussion and action on that relationship. I know that's a broad and vague. Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. It's a, I think it's superficial, at best. Um, right. It's um, it's superficial. It's allowed to be superficial through the agency of social media because. One of the, well, this is my belief anyway and observation is that the agency of of social media, and I think even myself I've been um, subject to this to an extent, is being that you can 
very quickly become expert at something superficially um, without having any connection to something. Um, and so, um, you know, if you, if you look at a lot of people who are farm-to-table producers, for example, primary producers who sell direct to their market, well, of course, they're on social media. They have to be. Um, and so it's so if you're one of the people who consume, if that's that's your choice of consumption, you know, you, know, you, you go out there and choose producers who, who sell directly, um, well, then you'll be following their social media and you'll be all over them. But, you, it, but it's still pretty superficial. You've never actually engaged in, um, and again, I'm generalising, but you've never actually engaged in what it actually is like to uh, to to be that producer or to, to be engaged in that sort of level of production. So the relationship, and I think that um, somewhat similarly, uh, and I think this is even um, true for some Aboriginal people, unfortunately, is because they lack, so many of them lack initiation, um, that uh, as do Europeans, um, that the connection to country that once would have been intrinsic and complete um, is just not there. So, you know, unless it's mountain biking or hiking or this, that or the other, um, then, yeah, it's, it's, it's occasional, and it's, but it's certainly not complete. But I don't know whether our economic circumstances actually allow us to have that to, to have a full level of completion because we have to make too much money um, to be able to, su- to survive in this environment. So um, that makes it very, very difficult for people, um, even people who live on the land, um, the, 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 the volume of cash that you've got to generate um, spreads you pretty thin. My word. Yeah, yeah my word. It, it feels like the Australian sense of self-identity going back a few years or even decades at this point carried a strong theme of outdoorsiness, you know, and I, I, I don't know how much of that was legitimate, how much of it was kind of crocodile dundeeism, but it feels to me like over the last decade at least we've there's been a massive disconnect from country. And, I mean, even in, you know, quite just mundane and trite ways it just feels like once upon a time everyone knew someone with a family member who was on a farm you know if if not if not your own uncle or you know the next door neighbor and you'd always have the farm to go to and the childhood memories if you didn't grow up on one yourself you know easters on the farm and da 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 even just from that level just it feels like there's such a, a disconnect and no, no one gets out anymore. If you look at like the American, North American outdoorsmanship, if you will. Now, I mean, they're not a kind of sit around and kumbaya kind of mob, but just they're, they're hunting, they're camping. In many ways, their culture it seems to have a far more explicit connection to going out on the land compared to where Australians well, are. Well, I know that when I go camping, it's with an esky full of grog and, <laughs> and a bunch of mates and, you know, there's not much. People go, let's go. No one says, let's go for a hike and see what the landscape's like. 
you might I might get on uh, get on the boat and um, go and cruise along the, along the river or wherever we are, which I enjoy doing. I'm not, I'm a fisherman's asshole, but uh, um, it's uh, um, it's um, but that's but that's it. I was thinking while you were speaking, then Byron, of what you were saying, and um, I remember having a conversation in England with uh, what's his name Kevin Macaranis, I think his name was. Uh, Anyway, uh, Kevin and I, and Kevin was a, um, an Englishman of Indian extraction. His family, his first generation Indian Englishman. And anyway, we were talking about the cricket. And, um, and of course, you know, the usual banter. And he had a th- we had a three way banter because he loved the, the English team, he loved the Indian team, and both of them hate Aussies. So, anyway, we we're talking about that. And I was saying, well, look, I, I, I said, and this relates to what you're saying. I said, I don't think we'll have a very Australia will have a very good team in the future because of what I saw, and this was in 2011, was actually at the Rex or the precursor, the Rad at Cowdery in 2011. And um, I said to him, I don't see that the that the next generation of kids are participating much in organised sport. So, which is an extension of that, uh, what you've just said, you know. Because sport relates to outdoors, sport relates to you know, on um, being a country Australian um, sporting clubs, um, which is a distinct, which is a great distinction. Uh, dis, uh, the distinctiveness of Australian rural culture is that you are your participation and engagement with other people is built around clubs and club life. And um, and the levels of participation in that uh, are horrendously bad. So you know, writ, writ large by you know abandoned tennis courts everywhere, um, football teams that merge. So they've got seven names in one one club, and and on it goes. And that that uh, also is a problem that leads to Australia declining as a cricketing nation. Because there's just not the pool anymore, and that even from a less organised kind of official position of clubs, it's that I don't even know what street or folk culture, where what one pictures a young Don Bradman hitting a bloody was it a golf ball off a corrugated iron uh, with a cricket stump, you know, honing his skills. You know, there are parts of the world in India, I dare say, there's probably far more gangs of kids playing cricket in the street like my partner a brazilian they all the kids are out playing yeah, soccer exactly. in the street Absolutely. still in australia i don't i don't see kids kicking no, the footy it's too dangerous or, out there on the streets there's cars and it could, it's just not it's just messy by and it's not going to work yeah mm. the ghettos of australia mm, mm. yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, so yeah so there's all of that which you're right and so the participation that goes with sport which you know then flies you know you're out so as i wrote in um the regrarian's handbook in the um in the uh, buildings chapter i i wrote about my um nana um there's a uh, i started one of the sections there saying don't come inside and uh, it's the section on tiny houses um i said don't she she used to say don't come inside unless it's 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 unless you are to be fed or to go to bed and that 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 then related because you weren't allowed. She didn't want us inside, upsetting her and being a pain in the ass. Come inside if you're there to work and help her can fruit or clean up or 
bring wood inside or whatever else, but don't come into the house because you're just a pain in the ass. So what do you do? You're outside. So stay outside or given a job or whatever else. And, of course, my corollary conversation with that from the perspective of tiny houses is that everyone lived in a tiny house once because you weren't allowed to be inside. Right. <laughs> right. But now you've got to accommodate you. Your parents will go crazy, you know, if, they, if, they, if you're well, in that well, Now every, every, new, uh, every new house has a bloody cinema room built into it. Well, yeah. Every every room has a bathroom. <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, especially on weekends, we'd wake up at the crack of dawn and jump on our bikes and head down to the river and proceed to get absolutely filthy and mm. skin our mm. knees and, you know, eat earthworms mm. or whatever we did and fall out of trees and get home at about, you know, six o'clock as the sun was setting and mum would say, where have you been? And we said, down the river. She said, Fine, okay, wash your hands, dinner's nearly ready. Now if a kid's not in the yard... It's a national emergency. Mm. Well, and it's quite likely you'll have human services come around. If I mean, I've heard recently um, uh, a friend's mother um, who got in trouble because she had pretty free-range kids, and I looked at the behaviours of those kids, and I thought, "Crikey!" Um, I even thought the other day I was I was walking to work at well, walking into here the other day at about four thirty, quarter to five, because I make um, bread here and um, something I'm doing on the side because I've always been interested in it. And, um, and there's a bloke driving along, this bloke driving around quite erratically and he was delivering newspapers in plastic wrapped newspapers and I thought, I used to do that when I was 11, 12, 13. I'd get 12 bucks a week and get up at 5, 4.35, ride, out, ride 20 minutes away to the news agent, fill my bike up with newspapers and go around the neighbourhood in the dark, um, shitty lights or no lights, delivering newspapers. Non-issue. That, that, that would break every child uh, labour law known to man now, apart from the fact that your parents would be worried sick of you, they'd have a GPS tracker you know, on it would go. Um, so the you know, so it's pretty well legal to be a free range kid now. You just don't see that. You just don't see if you did see a kid riding like a seven year old, like I was riding around on my push bike. You know, just being in the world, but someone would pull you up and apprehend you. Uh, so you know, it all goes to this, Byron. I don't know. I don't know who thought this shit up, but um, it is what it is now. Unfortunately, it is. It also feels like that just about the entirety of the human-country relationship at the moment in Australia is mediated by the state. Like if you if you so much as pick one bloody wildflower, you know, you'll get a slap on the wrist. Or if you if you go like hunting, you know, people international listeners might not realise and North American listeners would probably be shocked to discover that we are not allowed to hunt any Native Australian animals here. You you can hunt uh, the feral animals, we've got plenty of them, but Australian animals are off limits and even then it's very, very difficult to get a, a gun licence in many cases. And it's not really hunting, it's shooting as opposed to hunting. Explain. Well, hunting is where you actually go out. There's a whole culture of going out and um, for days or whatever, wearing the gear and having devices. I mean, if you spend any time in North America or gone, or in fact in Northern Europe or elsewhere, and going hunting with people, it's a it's a whole 
practice of hunting down an animal, whereas here we hunt ruse with a spotlight on the top of a ute and um, it's done from a distance and may or may not do anything with the carcass. Exactly. That's not with the purpose of actually eating that or having it as a trophy or, I mean, you don't see anybody here with busts of the great um, buck of Bendigo ca- uh, kangaroo, you know, <laughs> you know there's, there's, none, there's none of that, um, you know, in the trophy room. <laughs> There's a taxidermy is a pretty shitty trade here, I reckon. Hey, I've got a thing for taxidermy, mate. Yeah, I know. Oh Get stuffed. Sleep, <laughs> sleeping with stuffed animals. Um, so if you, Darren Doherty, were, if you suddenly found yourself as emperor of Australia, and I think you're in with a chance as good as anyone, of course we're playing kind of, you know, make a wish, wave a magic wand kind of stuff. Oh, are we? Oh, damn, damn. What would you do, if anything, to foster a, a greater connection between the Australian people and the country that they're on, um, if anything? Well, I think the first thing that would have to happen um, would be to uh, empower um, however we can um, the first Australians, the, the First Nations people of this continent, um, because uh, as... Uh, as Victor Stephenson said uh, quite famously a couple of years ago, you know, how about you sit in the passenger seat and we'll take the wheel for a while, you know, Um, because um, clearly, uh, with exceptions, um, clearly the European experiment here has probably not gone so well. Um, So uh, on a whole lot of levels. Um, And so I think that that would be the first step would be to, um, and that that, invo- that involves, of course, going through a macarada on all of that too. I mean, this, <laughs> you know, the land's the land's not happy with us clearly. So I think that there's got to be a macarada with the land um, somehow, and um, and how, and as well as uh, with with uh, the First Nations people. So I think that um, that. I don't notice I say not our First Nations people, which people uh, tend, it's that paternalistic colonialism that just doesn't seem to to be able to be taken from the language. You know, our First Nations people, um, you know. It runs it deep. Runs deep. So, was it William yeah. Burroughs? William Burroughs, who said that English is a parasitic thought form from outer space, something to that effect. <laughs> I hadn't heard that, but it's not too far off. It. I, well, as as with a lot of other European languages. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so I think that's the first step. And, look, it's you know, without, without getting too idealistic about it because that's that's it. And, you know, the other part of it, I suppose, too, Byron, is, I don't think so centrally. Um, I think that um, it's important to, to um, when, when you say, you know, the emperors tend to be centrist sort of, sort of characters and um, they're not necessarily very um, conciliatory or participating, don't encourage much participation. They're not empowering sort of characters. So um, one would have to cast that archetype off 
pretty quickly. It's your fantasy, mate. You can... Yeah, I know. I understand that. Well, I often, I mean, I've, I don't know if I've talked to you. I think about the uh, the king of the king of Morocco, right? Um, one of the few um, uh, monarchs of his legal capacity in the world and I think if I was at a dinner party with him I've thought because I've spoken about this when I've been in Morocco and elsewhere you look you know you've been to Morocco and you go around you go fuck me this place is so damn close it's it's one of those places that's breaking down before your eyes but you can you can literally see the change in the landscape shapes from humid to arid yeah you can and you go bloody hell if I if I was a if I had the power here, what would I do? And he's got a parliament, and he's got a, he's got a, he's got the institutions, and he's, you know, he's got the apparatus there to actually just provide a direction to say, "Hey, we love this place." And what does that love? How can that love actually be expressed? And I think, in part, well, that would be part of the part of what I try to imbibe here would be, you know. Is this the way to is this the way to treat treat your parent? Um, is this the, is this that is this that way? Um, because yeah, this is this is pretty bad. So you know that's that's why I think there needs to be a macarada before you actually get to, as we have in the human context in the Australian Aboriginal, or at least the uh, some of them, some of the nations here. Um, the process towards re- reconciliating our relationship with the land and not as Europeans but as people who are here because so much of the relationship that we, those of us who have got European descent and carry on with the European ways, which is global now, I mean, everyone's, a, everyone's functionally a European now, legally, um, culturally. Roman. Um, fashionably, um, ex- all roads lead to Rome. Yeah, all that, um, all of that. You've got to, you know, there's got to be some casting off of that. Um, and uh, that's, but that's, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a major structural change. And I think, uh, well, indeed, in, and it's only getting tighter. I mean, a, you've got releases from the Davos Institute, the Great Reset, and all mm. of this surveillance capitalism and sure. greenwashing of surveillance capitalism and, I mean, autonomy of the individual or the, the regional autonomy or regional identity of a people is just, you know, slipping out the window as there's further and further consolidation of power and, and centralising of power. So it's like there's this kind of race between that and the grassroots organic kind of expression and of and yearning from the human heart for place and meaning. And if you were an emperor and you were to articulate what you just said, how you would like the Moroccan king to act, I reckon people would weep with relief and gratitude. Like in the human heart, I think it's there and it, it's strong. You'd have to, well, you see, yeah, I, yeah, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you'd have to communicate it really well. I mean, of course. Kings are representatives of God. Emperors put themselves on a plate to be a representative of God. That's usually how it works. That's the, that's the quid pro quo in the human psyche. And, you know, if you're talking about the new model of emperorship, which is godless, let's say, which is a, se- which is a, secular, a secular emperor, which, you know, they... It's explicitly godless. Yeah, then that... Um, then that... Uh, 
that's a challenging one because people have then got to have a proxy for, for God. And that's tended to not go down so well in the human experiment so far. Um, I think, I mean, I've done all, you know, I keep reading as much as I can. Um, and, I'm, you know, I've been over the, over the holidays, I took a long break because my, my dad died. And um, so I. Um, Sorry to hear that. I had it. Yeah, no, that's all right, mate. Um, and he died in early December. And which we were expecting, he had cancer for a long time and so on. But I um, helped mum a lot with that and then I just I just needed some time. We'd worked really hard here and and we'd not had any time home for a long time. So I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot more than what I would ordinarily. And and I, I, my theme of this these holidays was reading theme, I suppose, was, um, was liberalism and communism and looking at, not necessarily origins, but looking at um, people who people who've been influenced, like because often when you're looking at origins, like if you read Marx and Engels, then it's a bit too straitjacketed because it's like when you're reading, it's like when you read about permaculture and you just read Mollison, you actually want to read someone who, well, I think more interested in reading. Um, second, third generations and the interpreters of that and how it actually, how the real rubber hits the, yeah, how the real rubber hits the real road, not the idealistic um, or, uh, uh, originator. Like the Talmud to the Torah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and it was interesting because I suppose, and, you know, it's always difficult to sort of put to one one side the influences of, of well-written pieces. But to, to I'm, a, I'm a great believer in the individual, um, you know, I, from the perspective that we all wake up each day with ourselves and then we find ourselves, if we're lucky, next to someone and around others in a family um, and so on and in a community. But we still, you know, we're, we're inside of our own heads and we have to deal with that. So when it comes down to having some... Uh, great leader. Um, mm-hmm. I think where we have to where we have to get to in the next step is to be able to have great leaders because there always will be leaders. It's just the way the world works and the way human society hierarchies work. I believe um, we need to have those who actually enliven in others um, that love, like you said. What is it that makes you want to love? Um, and when one, if 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 someone was able to do that, well, then I think that um, things would be very different. I mean, it's very. I, mean, I don't know if you've read Joel Salatin, who's a friend, and as you know, he wrote a really great piece. I think the best book he's written, from my perspective, um, was the marvelous pigness of the pig. Um, I can't remember the um, the subtitle, but um, but it's his it's his challenge to evangelical Christians to get their shit together when it comes to domain and and which is Genesis domain, which was given to to the, to, to Jews first and then to Christianity and and to, to Islam as well, and they um, and they've just dropped that ball completely. I mean, it's all been the domain part has not been about love and cherishing and 
um, at all. It's it's been about being an abusive patri- being an abusive father, um, basically, and that's that's how that's a, that's how it's rolled, and that's got to change. I mean, that's fundamental in us, and I think that you know, from all that I've been reading lately and for a long time, um, I think that 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 structurally needs to change. And to an extent it is, it's difficult with the um, with the gender discussion that sort of I think in some part uh, and this sort of smashing of the patriarchy, da 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 I think that's a sort of a, that's a distraction from us actually all just saying, okay, we're a human first, we're a person first. Let's just focus on that and let's focus on this other thing that we're also a participant in an ecosystem. And that that ecosystem allows us to be who we are and to do what we do. And unless we actually love it and cherish it and nurture it, well, then that that's not going to be there any, anymore for us. And all that we love and enjoy and benefit from will not will either be become a lot harder, or it will go away. And that's not so great. That's not so great. So that, but it's such a slow burn. I mean, the earth is so fucking tough. You know, that's what I mean. You know, you go to a Morocco and you think, bloody hell, that place is tough. It just takes one little. It's copped it. One little, yeah, and Australia is the same. You look at, I've seen Australia so many times, you know, it's had drought, 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 drought. And it's just like, you think, fuck, this is going to just go bad. And then 100 mil of rain comes and you can just see it just go, oh, what's the worry? <laughs> what's the worry? Oh, oh another one, another one. It's and the humans are like that. I think you know we're we're we've built like that. We've been chasing the earth around, and um, and we're we're the great op, we're the great opportunist as a species. And I think perhaps that's uh, you know when you're an opportunist, you you're always on the edge, aren't you? I don't know. It's a hard one. It's a hard one because no one's built the same either. So so trying to. I think I think the love thing, like you put it, is is the best thing to to think. But you could, yeah, you've got to bring that horse to the water, haven't you? How can you make someone love something? How can you make someone love something? This is I. You know what? I have come many many times in my head. I've come around to that. The answer being love and wisdom. And as vacuous and hallmark cardy and oversaturated as it sounds i can't escape it it's just like i don't think there's a goddamn thing we could invent it, it's all about wisdom and love but how do you foster that how do you you certainly can't mandate well, you gotta own up. how do you manufacture well, you gotta own up to love right um i think um it's interesting joe my old mate joe palacio who i was um i wrote about this morning actually in a piece um he um he got a brain tumor, and he was a fit. As a, I mean, he's a really fit guy. I think. He, did you ever meet Joe? Yeah, in in California, in the US. No, no, no. Joe, Joe was in New Zealand. Um, FRI. Uh, no, I don't. he had Rainbow Valley Farm. Um, he was he was an Austrian bloke, but he lived there for decades. Anyway, he was fit as a fiddle, and he got a bloody brain tumor, and it killed him. Anyway, during the last, and Joe, Joe was one of those blokes who carried the world on his shoulders. You know, he was worried about a lot and worried about the fate of humanity, worried about the fate of the earth and blah, 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 and carried that pretty strongly. And anyway, towards the end of his life, 
and he was, a, you know, he loved protesting and arguing and just being obstinate and whatnot. And towards the end of his life, he actually wrote a passage where, you know, the penny finally dropped, I'm about to die, what really matters? And it was love. And, um, and that he wrote a piece about it, which I, um, when I spoke at the, um, the Permaculture Convergence in Sydney, I, with the permission of his wife, I, I had to do a talk there on other on farm planning or whatever, and I because I was a good mate of Joe's and still am of his wife um, and uh, Trish, and I asked permission if I could read this piece out. And I remember what, looking over at Bill Mollison, who was there, and his Bill was pretty old at the time, and he was crying because he knew. But you know, it's a similar thing, you know. It's sort of. And a lot of people were because the words were so true. You know, I've, I've done, you know, I've, I've, you know, you put so much effort into the fight without realising that it was actually love that was going to happen. And I think Joel, Joel's, Joel came to that conclusion a lot earlier than others. And he speaks of that. He speaks of, of um, treating the earth as if you would uh, and giving it your caress as you would to a lover, um, you know, um, that's that's a, that's a tenderness. That's a tenderness which um, which you know hopefully most people um, enjoy to enjoy in their time. Whether it's a you know whether it's a nice word from your grandma or whether it's a good pat you know a nice word from a stranger or whatever however it comes. You My know? friends and I in um, Margaret River, we've taken to singing to country. Mm. And, and it actually occurred to me when I was listening so to So you've memorised Kumbaya then? <laughs> yeah, dude. Have I not played you my version? <laughs> I think you should have that. I think the, I think you should have that as the... Um, Intro music to the Octorange, right? The, the title music. Yeah, yeah, that, I think so, yeah. Do you know uh, Terence McKenna? Are you familiar with him? Uh, okay. He was kind of like my philosophy dad. Many people would know of Terence McKenna, but very, very cerebral and one of these hyper thinkers and incredibly articulate. And um, anyway, without going into too much of what he did and what he was, he was very, very brainy and cerebral. And he was on his deathbed in Hawaii uh, with dying of a brain tumour. And I'm not sure if it was his last words, but it was close to it. He was, he was quoted as saying on his deathbed something to the effect of, oh, my God, it's all about love. It's all about the heart. It's all about love as he was on his way out. Yeah, well, my friend, Eugenio Grass, who died last year, I don't know what he but he had another brain tumour too early. I imagine he probably had similar things, but he was already on that journey. Yeah, that's where it is, Byron. Great question. Thank you. I um, this My connection's actually getting a bit mm-hmm. wobbly and you've had a long day full of baking bread and doing whatever else you do when the camera's not on you well you know that i'm indef- you know that i'm indefatigable uh, you are indefatigable you actually you, you're the first i learned that word <laughs> off you because you were self-described as indefatigable but what the fuck is indefatigable well in fact one of the best things about saying that word is when you say it like a like a toffee english when you go indefatigable you know you puff your cheeks up indefatigable it'd be a great catchphrase for some character actually indefatigable yeah. all right mate darren odocrity did i do it again i butchered it oh no that's beautiful oh, no you're getting there you're getting there it's amazing what a, what a, what some west australians are capable of oh thank you patronizing prick 
Darren Donato Doherty. Oh, patronising Victorian, Victorian, I think you meant to say. Indefatigable Victorian. Thanks for thanks for joining us, mate. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, how many people have been before me, Byron? Just to, just curiously. Uh, you are actually the second. Oh, but, but the other guy didn't. The other guy didn't mean anything, mate. <laughs> Not really, you're you're the one. I was just I mean, you, all this love talk, you know, just maybe want to get it clear that was all. Yeah, you're you're the one, mate. The other one was an accident. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scheduling mix, scheduling mix up, no doubt. <laughs> where can where quickly can people find find you and your work? Uh, oh, they just go to agrarians. Um, I actually did a I did a Google search for agrarians. We've totally dominated. There's nothing anything but um, it's great. Um, so you just Google agrarians, and I think you can go for like 33 pages on Google. And, and you're it. Well, it's not me. See, this is one of the things, Byron. I've, I've tried to take uh, me out of it because um, otherwise. Uh, it all, it all gets a bit uh, populist and uh, the cult of the personality shines through, which I don't want to have. Which is why you, sir, will never be emperor. That's right. <laughs> oh, 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 my world has just come crashing down. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. And on that note. <laughs> all right, mate. Thank you for having joined us. No worries. Thanks for the opportunity, my friend. Brother Byron. claimed it healed one's mind So off we pressed into the night With naught but guesses as our guide And though we drifted without sight Somehow we seem to drift toward the light We wandered wide in stiffened circles With mere glimpses of the path We learned to carry others' names We lost a few upon the way And though our twisting made us tired A spiral softer than a light
must grow And just how deep they need to go Cause though we sow them with our hands Still we reap the fruits of falling